Abby Johnson, we're living in a world today where many celebrities, including Oprah recently, have been pushing this campaign where they say, shout your abortion, encouraging women to shout from the rooftops that they've murdered their child. Now, if we're talking about a diminished sense of the loss of the sacred, what does this say about society? How far have we moved away from the sense of the sacred if we're bragging about killing what is God given us as sacred? I think that's a great question, David. Um, you know, I think that we can kind of go back Um to the sexual revolution, I think we can go back to when children became commodities and when children became a nuisance in our culture. Um, even today, if you if you look around our society, if you look around marketing and advertising, um, children are no longer seen as gifts. So when you look at um, messaging in advertising campaigns, um, the women who seem to have have their lives put together, um, attractive women, um, you know, the women that are in their convertibles with the top down and their hair, you know, flying in the breeze. Uh, these are childless women, right? The women who look disheveled, who have, you know, flower on their face, uh, you know, whose hair is, you know, looking crazy. These are women who have children hanging all over them. And that all goes back to, um, the sexual revolution and really the introduction of contraceptives and, and the birth control pill, which was in the sixties. And that was really, I think one of the first times where the sacredness of children was lost. The sacredness of life was lost. And um, really, the sacredness of family was lost. Um, and so that was also when we started seeing a higher rate of single moms. Um, we started seeing kind of this breaking apart of the family. Um, that was when we started hearing more messages of, you know, you don't need a man, you can do this on your own. We started seeing a rise in uh, single parent households. We started seeing also then a rise in poverty uh, among those, those families. So um, I think so much of it is is kind of coupled together um, that when we begin to commodify our children, um, we see this also through IVF, through surrogacy. Um, all of these things are, you know, really profoundly anti-God because they are an attack on the image of God. Um, they're an attack on the family. And 
And now we see it even to a greater extent because, you know, people will, will ask me, you know, what, what's the deal, you know, with the abortion numbers They're you know, they're going up, they're increasing, you know, all of this. And, and I say, well, now we've moved away from just not caring about the vulnerable in our society, but people don't even care about their own life anymore. You know, look at the suicide rates. Suicide rates are increasing. Uh, the the rate of even suicide suicidal ideation is increasing. When I was in high school, there was no such thing as self harm, self mutilation, right? Cutting these sorts of things that didn't exist. Um, when I was in high school, now it's so prevalent among young people. So when we see the abortion rates increasing, we see violence increasing, we see school shootings increasing. Well, of course we're seeing that increase because not only is life in the womb, not sacred, but they, people don't even see their own lives as sacred euthanasia spreading across the United States, spreading across the world. Of course, of course, all of this is kind of a, we're on a, um, a natural trajectory where not only do we kill our children, but now we're willing to kill ourselves. And what do you hear from people? Because you travel around a lot, you engage with people from both sides, those who believe that life is sacred and those who are denied. And I was wondering about those who deny that life is sacred and their their push, as you say, to destigmatize, to normalize things. I think we just intrinsically, instinctually know not to harm um, the human person or ourselves or others, not to kill one another, but they're trying to like remove the shame. So what are they saying? Abby Johnson, are they saying that this is just part of the patriarchy, that the patriarchy or Christianity has put these stigmas on us and, and they're not they're not true? Or or what are they saying in regards to trying to normalize this type of evil? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the pro-abortion movement, um, the you know pro-euthanasia movement, the pro-LGBT movement, of course, that all fit hand in hand. They all believe that there should be absolutely no stigma. Um, and in particular, when we look at the pro-abortion movement, they believe that there should be no shame surrounding abortion. There should be no stigma, which is why you see this shout your abortion campaign. And I can say, David, when I was working at Planned Parenthood, um, I left 14 years ago. When I was working at Planned Parenthood, all of our abortion brochures were behind the counter. They were available, but they were behind the counter. You had to ask for them. Um, things have changed in the past 14 years since I've worked at, at Planned Parenthood. Now they're very brazen with their support of abortion. Um, you know, Cecile Richards, when she was president her last year as president of Planned Parenthood, she went on Twitter and said, providing abortions at Planned Parenthood is as important as providing cancer screenings. So 
their support of abortion, their push for abortion. Um, they're very out and forward with it. It's a very forward facing campaign for them. It's not behind the counter anymore. Uh, they're very, they're very out and open with it. Uh, in 2020, I went to the women's March conference and I wanted to just kind of hear what, what they were saying. And I went, I went as myself. I didn't go undercover or anything. I, I went as myself. I used my name, and my email to register. And I, I was able to go into a few sessions before they kicked me out. And one of the sessions I went into was about abortion stigma. And they were, of course, trying to, you know, tell people that abortion should be normalized, that it is just like any other medical procedure. But a couple of things that really stuck out for me in that session um, was this. And this was a woman from Planned Parenthood Federation of America. So this is from, you know, their overarching organization, their parent organization. The lady said that everyone needed to stop saying that abortion is only 3% of Planned Parenthood services. And she said, because first of all, we know that's not true. She said, we know that abortion makes up more than 3% of our services. She said, everybody knows that. And, and people in the room, these are Planned Parenthood people, and they all kind of laughed and they were shaking their head going, yeah, yeah, we know. And then she said, and by saying it's only 3% of our services makes it sound like we're trying to reduce the number of abortions or that, that we're trying to limit it. Like what's well, only 3%. She said, we don't want it to only be 3%. She said, we want to make abortion something that's normal. She said, so what if our abortion numbers are at 90%, that would be a great thing for Planned Parenthood. And she said, and the other thing she said, the second thing she said that I thought was really interesting is she said, it's perfectly fine for people to call us pro-abortion because we are pro-abortion. We are for abortion. And she said, when a woman comes into our clinics, we want her to choose abortion. And I thought, this is the most honest conversation I've heard from someone with Planned Parenthood, right? They're just putting it out there on the line. And I have much more respect for someone who's just honest, right? Just be honest about what you believe and who you are. Don't try to, you know, use different semantics and, you know, whatever. Just say who you are and what you believe. And that was really telling for me um, to hear that because they really believe that you should be able to murder your children in the womb for any reason through all nine months of pregnancy, 
And the things that I heard at that conference were basically any reason is a good reason. So, you know, at eight months of pregnancy, any reason is a good reason. You don't have to have a, a, an adverse diagnosis at eight or nine months. You don't have to have financial hardship. Any reason is a good reason. And women shouldn't have to pay for it. Um, so removing all of this shame and stigma and being proud of having an abortion, almost like abortion is a rite of passage that every woman should have an abortion at some point in time in their life. That also goes back to this sacredness of, of life because they don't view women as sacred. They don't view womanhood as sacred. They don't view the feminine as sacred. And we see that based on their partnership with the LGBT agenda. And I want to, I want to know if you can comment on that related point, because you brought it up in a, in a couple of different ways now. And I want to see if we can dig into it a little more because what would you say to people who haven't made a correlation or have made a correlation about these are all the same people? It seems to be that the same people who are promoting the LGBT agenda, the sexual revolution, abortion, Black Lives Matter, um, aspects of the whole COVID scam, um, people who call people names, you know, election deniers, the critical race theory people. All, it seems to be the, they're all this same legion and they all have their own sacraments um, that they, that they want to push on people, tell people that this is your right. This is your right. This is your right. This is your right. And they want us to believe that all our rights are things that are anti-God. What can we say that, I mean, is this true? I mean, do you agree with that? And if, if that is true, what can we say about these are all, the same people. Yeah. So you're absolutely right, David. So, um, that's a question I get all the time from people. They, they ask, they say, Abby, why, 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 when I look at, you know, these, uh, drag queen story hours, right. Or our local pride parade, why is Planned Parenthood always a sponsor? Why do they care? Right? Why do they care? They, you know, gay people aren't even having babies. Why is Planned Parenthood up in the mix? Right? Um, well, this is why. So about, I, I would say when I worked at Planned Parenthood, about 25 to 30% of the people that I worked with. Now, remember, this was 14 years ago. So I have to believe the number is higher now. About 25 to 30% of the people that I worked with at that time identified as someone in the LGBT movement. Okay. So it's, it's really bizarre. Um, if you think about this in, in this way, okay. 
it's really bizarre, ironic, whatever word you want to use, um, demonic, for someone whose sexual act does not create children, right, and is against natural law, for that person to be telling a woman who has a child in her womb that they should destroy that life. And that is what's happening inside of these abortion facilities every day. The reason that they're so tightly intertwined is that these movements, all of these movements, just like you said, are profoundly anti-God, but they're also profoundly anti-life. And they are a hundred percent about destroying the image of Christ. And that really is the overarching design of, of these groups. Um, you know, abortion is not the root of the evil. It's a symptom of the root, right? Um, homosexuality, this LGBT movement, that's not the root. It's a symptom of the root. And the root of it is the destruction of the image of God. And uh, there's all these symptoms coming, coming out of that, the destruction of the family. Those are, those are the roots. And we're just seeing all of these symptoms sprouting from that. In Chicago, I heard you speak and I was really struck by this point. Ever since I had become pro-life and it was tied with, together with me becoming Catholic, back in 2006, I heard from pro-life people when I started standing outside of these um, abortion mills that, oh, we just have to, if we just show people these images of, of life and how life is being destroyed and how life is sacred, that it, it'll move them. They just have to see it, right? But in Chicago, <laughs> you had said that we're way well beyond that because people who you encounter know that they're not, it's not a fetus. That's not even a, a, something that they're processing. They know it's a baby, you said. So where, where are we at in regards to like the diminishing sense of the sacred? If, if it's not this word game of fetus versus baby, if people know, as you say, that they're going to this abortion mill and they're taking the life of their child, yet they, their conscience isn't even clicking in, where are we at? So I'm going to say the thing that most pro-lifers don't want to say. Um, women have abortions primarily out of selfishness. Um, and nobody, nobody really wants to say that um, because they, you know, every, everybody in the movement wants to um, turn women into victims. Um, and I'm, I'm just not going to do that. Um, I believe that there was a time, you know, back in the, you know, seventies and before we really had ultrasound technology, um, 
before we had the internet, before we had information, the information that we have today, where women were really duped um, into having abortions. I know a woman who, you know, she was pregnant and she was a kid. I mean, she was 17. She went to her doctor and her doctor said, don't worry about it. I'm going to do something and it's going to bring your period back. And she was an adult when she realized, oh my gosh, my doctor did an abortion. I mean, she didn't even understand what was going on. You know, there were women that that were truly victims at that time. And there are women today. Uh, they're few and far between, but there are, are women who are victims. There are women. I've, I've seen a, a young girl be physically, you know, dragged into an abortion clinic by her hair. Um, you know, her mother was dragging her in, um, and we called the police and the police did nothing. Um, so, you know, there are women few and far between who are truly victims, but by and large, the majority of women walk into abortion clinics knowing exactly what they're doing. They know they're pregnant with a baby. There was never a time in the eight years that I worked in the abortion clinic where a woman sat across from me and called her baby anything other than a baby. She never called it a fetus. She never called it an it. She always recognized that she was pregnant with a baby. Um, The internet is available to everyone all the time, on our phones, everywhere. You can Google images of babies. You can Google images of ultrasounds. So we can no longer claim to be this ignorant society. And women can no longer claim to be ignorant about abortion and abortion procedures and what's happening in the womb. Um, There's testimonies everywhere. There's information everywhere. So, you know, I've had two abortions. I was not a victim. Um, I didn't know everything there was to know about abortion, of course, but I made that choice. And if I wanted to have more information, I could have had more information. I chose not to. So, and I, I personally, as a woman find it offensive that all of these pro-lifers are basically treating women like idiots. Um, like, you know, you poor little helpless girl, you know, you couldn't figure it out on your own cause you're such a victim, you know, no, um, we have brains, we can use them and we used our brains to make a terrible decision. And that's what free will is all about, right? And that's what repentance is about. Um, that's what the sacrament of confession is all about, right? That's why we utilize it. So, but I think, you know, by and large, women are having abortions because they're selfish, because they don't want to make a different, they don't want to make sacrifices in their lives. Um, they, I mean, I, we talked to women on our hotline, uh, at Loveline. These women are like, I don't want to give up the body I have. Um, I don't want to stop drinking. I don't want to have stretch marks. Um, I don't want to, um, you know, I, I don't want I, all kinds of things. You know, I don't want to have to sacrifice my education for a couple of years. Um, I don't want to have to give up the things that I like. 
You know, I don't want to have to budget for a kid. All these different things. They're not thinking about that when they're having sex. Um, you know, so they don't think about the consequences and that's the world that we're living in. We're living in a world where we want to do things without consequences. Um, we want to live in a consequence free society and that's just not, that's not reality. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, I think that that's kind of, I think this sort of victimhood of women, that's something that we need to leave behind us. Um, you know, I think that we need to call men to something greater for sure. Um, you know, a lot of times these women are left, uh, alone to make this decision. The men aren't stepping up and taking their rightful place as defenders and protectors and fathers and caregivers uh, to these women. They're leaving them alone. So we do need to call men to something greater. You know, feminism has been um, an incredibly demonic influence on our culture and women. Um, You know, you just... I mean, feminism has destroyed women in, in our culture, I believe. Um, but if you talk to women, every woman in the world wants to be protected. Every woman in the world wants, you know, a a knight in shining armor, right? Every woman wants that and they can deny it, but that's inborn in us. That's who we are as women. And, um, but we're not teaching our men to be those men because feminism has told them not to be those men. And, and so we need to reclaim that, um, in our teachings, we need men to reclaim that. Um, but in a way we need women to step aside so that men can reclaim that so that men can reclaim being the head of their household so that they can reclaim being spiritual leaders in the home. I think that if, if men did reclaim that, I think that there would be fewer abortions um, because we need men to, to help direct, um, help direct those decisions. And for my last question, Abby, and I'd like to say, you know, as a post abortive man, I definitely, you know, I was moving to hear someone who was affected by feminism and believing that, you know, I didn't have a say in the matter. But one of the students listening, you know, a lot of them are Catholic. They, they, they may just be wondering at this point in time, and this would be my final question, just what is the role of we can play in our church to to do what you're saying to promote true femininity and true masculinity and um, true uh, marriage and what all that entails you know no sex outside of marriage what more can we do when we're living when we have a church and sometimes some of our leaders are they're not on board with with what you're saying so i have a lot of opinions about that david um 
I, so, you know, I, I mean, if you, you know, if, if you're a Latin mass goer, you don't really have this, this issue. Um, you don't have the issue as much because I feel like gender roles are, are pretty well defined, um, in Latin mass, as far as, you know, um, serving and, and things like that in the church. Um, but in Novus Ordo masses, um, I think one of the first things we have to do is get back to all male altar servers. Um, I think there is, I, I think now more than ever, we need clear gender roles in the church. Um, and getting females off the altar is one of the first things that that we must do we need to do um and we need to allow women to serve in the church but allow them to serve in a way that's appropriate for women um and so that might be you know a sacristan ministry um you know it it might be a service ministry in the church but you know doing something that is more feminine um it might be leading you know a respect life committee which is entirely proper. Um, but getting them off the altar, I believe is key, um, in a Novus Ordo mass. Um, cause it's not for them. This is, this is for priestly discernment and women are not going to be priests. So, um, it's important to, to get them off the altar. Um, and maybe even into like a hospitality role. Um, you know, and, and I, one of the arguments I hear all the time is, well, but you know, women, you know, they need to discern too. They need to discern vocation. Well, religious sisters aren't up on the altar. Um, but almost every, you know, uh, almost, almost every, um, religious sister I know, part of their charism is hospitality it's service. So let's do that with our girls, right? Let's teach them hospitality. Let's teach them service. How can they be of service to, um, our altar serving ministry? How can they be of service to our priest? That's what we need to be teaching our girls. Um, also I think that having, you know, marriage ministries in the church are important, but I think having, you know, not just where you, you know, have a, a group thing and then you have kind of a lecturer, right? That really doesn't foster community. Um, I think having, you know, um, small gatherings, having like mentor couples working with, you know, newly married couples, that seems to work well. Uh, we've been engaged um, in that before. Um, and I love it. I mean, we've, you know, we've been married 18 years, but that feels like nothing when you're, when you have a mentor couple that's been married for like 55 years. Right. And I love that. So, you know, working with people who really have gone through the ups and downs of marriage, right. And, you know, partnering with them and doing life with them and going to dinner with them and hearing their stories. I think we're, we're missing that in the church. Um, we're missing that sort of community with, um, with our elderly, we're missing their wisdom. 
were missing out on their wisdom, particularly in their marriage, um, in their marriages. And so I think that that's important. Um, but I will say this, some of the best community I've ever experienced, uh, was in the Episcopal church, the worst teaching ever, but the best community, uh, I've ever experienced. And they, they do get that right. And it's, and it, a lot of that is missing in the Catholic church. People are very, uh, insulated. You know, they, they come in, they go to mass, they leave. And we need to do better as a church, getting to know one another, doing small group together. Um, you know, people need to get involved with their young people. There's so much that you can learn from the young people in your church. And there's a lot that they can learn from you. Um, but getting involved with your young people and teaching them the value of marriage, teaching them the value of life, um, teaching them the value of themselves, teaching them, you know, their own self-worth. Our young people are struggling and they need good mentors. Um, but you know, I think the message that I, I, I try to give every time I'm giving an interview or talking to people, uh, that have children is to get your kids off of the internet, get your kids off of social media, because that is where they're hearing so many negative messages about themselves, about their own value, about, um, marriage. Um, you, you have to get them away from those negative influences and they'll be fine. None of my kids have the internet. None of my kids are on social media and they're perfectly fine. So your kids will be fine without it. I promise. Abby Johnson, thank you for this catechesis and instruction on our return to the sacred. Thank you. Of course. Thank you, David.